All right, it's bold and uncut. I'm here with Michael Schultz, Dr. Michael Schultz. Can I say that? It makes it sound more legit. Is that good? Uh-huh. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the uh, in the intro of the uh, of what the title is too, just so people oh, be like, oh, it's legit. <laughs> <laughs> no, he Michael is a uh, a father, a husband. He is a pastor. He's a professor. He is a he's working on a lot of different projects. Uh, he's going. You're going to be in a uh, a conference called Why Calvinism in a few months, right? Right. Yeah, February in Tullahoma, Tennessee. It's about an hour south of Nashville. So what's your topic on at that conference? My topic is Calvinism and the love of God. Um, because for most people, when they engage with Calvinism, the doctrine that they have an issue with is typically limited atonement, which is the idea that Christ only purchased atonement with his death for the people who will actually be saved. Um, And what the reaction to that is, is people say, well, that means that God doesn't love everybody. Uh, He only sent Christ to die for certain people. And so my topic is engaging that. Um, Whether or not that's true, I'm not going to spoil the speech on that, but whether or not that's true, what the Bible says about the love of God uh, and how that we believe that God loves as Calvinists. Yeah, that's a big uh, topic because uh, isn't that, that's kind of the breaker with four-point and five-point Calvinist, right? Yeah. Is that yeah, usually for, the breaker? For the vast most part. Okay. And, and, as I, and, and that's one of the big things I want to get across in this, uh, what I'm bringing tomorrow in Sunday school is kind of showing our history and foundation in Calvinism and that and you can be a Southern Baptist and be Calvinist and and even like uh, our our uh, church really isn't Armenian or Calvinist. They're kind of something in between when you look because uh, they have the they don't have the fifth point in Armenianism, which is uh, you know with the total security and all that. Yeah. So so it's kind of an in between thing. But uh, but yeah, that that's awesome. And then you got what else? Have you been doing something with uh, translation with uh, English Bible as well? If you want to bring that up. Yeah, so, well, I do some work with the Holy Scriptures Bible Society, um, and we're, we're just rendering out a, um, a modern English Bible that's um, set to be published in 2025, but uh, most of my work is in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. so I've, I'm a senior editor, so I actually, most of what I do is the editors will send their translations over to me, and I'm just checking it to make sure that what they've rendered in English is what the Hebrew says. So um, I don't do as much work as they do, per se, because they go through the nuances of what does this particular Hebrew word mean, how has it been used historically, um, and then they render that out. And all I'm doing is reading the Hebrew, looking at the English, and if anything stands out and I say, that's not the right word for that, then I have the ability to change that. But um, right now, I've, I've overseen the translation of Psalms, Proverbs, and I'm currently working on uh, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. So it's, it's a really fruitful work, and it's really enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Um, and yeah. I, I love that they include multiple people. Just, you know, that just, uh, that's cool. We can all work together and get a good translation out. Do you, do you know the name that they're going to call this one? So I think, I think they're going to call it the Modern King James. Okay. Uh, because the the text is based largely on the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek and Hebrew underlying the King James Version. Uh, and I, it's funny because I'm not a they, they call the Textus Receptus the TR. Uh, I'm not a big TR guy. Yeah. Uh, I use the uh, ESV, which is based off of the Masoretic Hebrew and um, the Nestle Holland Greek New Testament. So it's it's fun for me because I'm learning about the TR, uh, getting a little more well-versed in my Hebrew, and then also at the same time in my regular pulpit ministry, I continue to engage with the ESV and the uh, NA28 and other early texts like that. So it's it's very fruitful and enjoyable for me. Yeah, that's the one I, I enjoy, the ESV. That's. Um, do you think uh, this new translation is going to be... Uh, accepted by King James only people since it's got King James in the name <laughs> it, it should be honestly okay. I mean uh, it's based on the same text a good deal of the um, of the text is going to be very similar we're, we're trying hard to maintain some of the poetic nature 
that people miss when they leave the King James. Yeah, yeah, really. Um, because that is, I mean, there's something about... It sounds pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah, like when you read like the, the Christian Standard Bible, which was published by the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it rendered the John 3.16 better than any other version, but it lacks that poetic nature that all of us learned the King James in. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can pull it up real quickly here. The Christian Standard Bible says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And knowing the Greek behind that, that's that's about as good of a translation as you could possibly make. Yeah. But you're if still, when people quote John 3.16, they're going to say, For God so loved the world, and, and they're going to go King James. Um, begotten so, son, uh, yeah, that he, you know, he gave his only begotten son. That you know, monogamous hoyos. And I've seen that you've uh, you've explored that quite a bit in some of your stuff. Uh, what does monogamous hoyos mean? And it does mean one and only. Um, so the CSB's got it right, but we're still so tied to that legacy of King James. Mm-hmm. So. It's uh, hopefully this new version will, being based on the text that the King James is based on, maintaining some of that poetic nature, but updating the language to where we don't use archaic terms anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, in the Old Testament, we won't be using the word unicorn, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you ever read uh, in Psalms and Proverbs, there's a word that was supposed to depict an animal that had one horn. They say unicorn. Yeah, we might call it a rhino. uh, But the the Latin term was a one-horned animal. And that's what unicorn means. It's from two Latin words. Uni, which means one, and cornus, which means horn. That's great. So there's there's unicorns, technically. The Bible says so. Right, the Bible does say a one-horned animal, but when you think of unicorn, yeah. you don't think of, oh, it was an animal with one horn. Think of a horse. Right, you think of a horse with a horn. It's like, yeah. that's a different creature. So yeah. some of that, you know, we have worked with. And, and so it's, I, I'm excited to see how it's received. It may not be received well at all, and that's fine. But <laughs> Well, that's just one more translation. It's it's nice having all the translations, I think, especially the, the yeah. ones who aren't paraphrasing and making it, you know, taking stuff out. But what uh, exactly, what I know you're a professor. Is it Forge Seminary? Is that where you're at? Yeah, so I'm an associate professor of church history at Forge Theological Seminary. Um, I teach several different courses. Um Right now, I teach five courses. Uh, of course, I teach the undergrads, church history, one and two. Um, I also teach undergrads um, and graduate students a course on Calvin and Luther, and then another course on Augustine. And uh, I teach graduate students hermeneutics. It's uh, Introduction to Expository Preaching. So this semester, that's what I teach. Last semester was an entirely different story. I was teaching... Old Testament 1 and 2, Church History 1 and 2, and Intro to Apologetics. So I get to teach a lot of different stuff, uh, which is exciting. And then I actually just had um, a conversation yesterday with some folks at Louisiana Baptist University, um, and they're maybe going to be letting me help them in some ways in the future. So that, that announcement's pending, but I might be able to uh, work together with LBU. So that's lots awesome. of excitement going on there. What's your uh, area of focus as far as church history? As far as what, what are you best at? And then what is, as far as church history, what's your most interested area? Well, um, Time-wise, I guess. Yeah. So for the most part, what I've studied is <laughs> pacifism cultures. Yeah. So um, mostly Reformation era. Um, this would, that, would be post- yeah. 1596 up until the fall of the communist regime in Russia in 1989. So would a lot of that so, include the Anabaptist as far as they, I knew they were pacifists too. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. can, you, okay, that's cool. Yeah, so the, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, uh, there's a, a group in Canada called the Duke of Boers. Um, and so all of, the, of course, the Amish, all those groups, um, 
they're, they're really interesting to me because their history and their doctrine is really close to the Baptist, but they've just taken things a step further than we've taken them. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they're more consistent than we are, but it's also very impractical. And so um, that's that's most of what I've researched. The most interesting era for me to study is probably the uh, the post apostolic age, the pre the what they call, they call the anti Nicene age. So from the time of the death of uh, the Apostle John, roughly one hundred through to three twenty five. Okay. That's the most interesting era for me. Yeah. Um, because you have guys like Irenaeus mm-hmm. and Justin Martyr and Polycarp and Papias, and you've got documents coming out like the Didache mm-hmm. uh, that are just really interesting to read. Uh, and a lot of the writings of those guys, I mean, uh, adverse heresies and, and uh, where Justin Martyr is uh, dialoguing with Marcion. That sort of stuff is just really interesting to read, so and helpful for yeah. even a modern Christian. Yeah, Marcin was an interesting character for sure. I, yeah, that's a fun. I, I love the whole first through the fifth. But what I've noticed and kind of where I've put my focus more on uh, Baptist history this last couple of weeks is Baptist history is pretty fun too. <laughs> we got some yeah. interesting characters for sure. I just bought. Um, the something of justification by benjamin keach so i'm excited to dig into that work uh have you have you i know you've heard of keach but uh yeah keach is a dog man yeah (laughs) well well, that would be a good one right i mean he's on par with the rest of the reformation as far as justification goes i would assume and so I'm, i'm thinking about kind of basing that on his book and kind of obviously with uh with the bible and and some of my systematic theology books just to explain justification. You think that'd be pretty good? Yeah. Yeah, he sounded yeah. like a cool character. Uh but anyway, yeah, that's uh that's uh that's awesome. And 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 this is the one of the big things. We'll go ahead and jump into it as far as what is our relationship with the Anabaptists cuz pretty much the 1644 thing uh the the confession of the baptist we're kind of saying hey we're we're not anabaptist but at the same time we 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 see similar stuff but a lot of the anabaptists uh their ideas were more of a restoration rather than reformation they they were kind of starting over right yeah well so the the anabaptists are considered in a different line of reformers so you'll hear people use terms like the magisterial reformers and that term refers to guys like Martin Luther, mm-hmm. John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, so uh, Biza, for that matter. So those guys were magisterial reformers in that they maintained the Catholicity, mm-hmm. uh, their ecclesiology. They, they, they weren't strictly opposed. So like Martin Luther never wanted to not be Catholic. I know. I'm sure he would hate uh, Lutheranism, the fact that they call it Lutheranism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he never wanted to not be Catholic. So he, I mean, he was against the idea that the Pope had the authority that he claimed, but he wasn't explicitly <clears throat> against the Pope per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, those guys really maintained this majesty of the Christian faith. And then you have it spread into England which is actually where the the Baptists that we're a part of come out of. Mm -hmm. That all comes out of this magisterial movement um, where the Anglican Church is... It's essentially the Catholic Church. It's just that instead of having the Pope as the head, they've got the King as the head. Yeah. So that's really where the Baptists that we're a part of come out. Across from them, you have what they... Oh, goodness. So, of course, as soon as I start talking about it, the uh, I put three characters on my for my for my lesson uh, tomorrow that they need, and now obviously this is a a brief summary. But I put Luther, Calvin, and Henry the Eighth as far as kind of kind of understanding kind of how we came out of of obviously Anglicanism, and they were wanting the Puritans were wanting to reform, kind of like uh, you know Luther was wanting to just reform, not start something new necessarily, but. When they wouldn't reform, they kind of separated eventually, and then we came out of the Puritans, and we wanted to show yep. our continuity with them as well. But we weren't necessarily starting something totally new. But but that's just kind of the three characters I brought up as far as how we came about: uh, Henry VIII yeah. and Luther and Calvin. Obviously, the Puritans had a huge influence with Calvin, but 
but I felt like that was a decent summary. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, because what I was trying to think, I couldn't think of the word, is the other movement is called the Radical Reformation, mm. and it's where they maintained pretty much that the, the whole Catholic Church, the whole system broke. And so their ecclesiology was wrong, their theology was wrong, their soteriology was wrong. Everything they believed was wrong. And they started really from scratch. So you had guys like um, Munster, uh, who led the Munster Rebellion. He was pretty much a Marxist, wasn't he? (laughs) I don't know. He was what? I've heard heard Marxists kind of connect to him, kind of a communist socialist. it's, It's not a bad comparison to bring. Because what they did was they they were post-millennial. I mean, everybody says they were pre-mill, but if you read anything about what they did, they, they were textbook post-mill. Um, they believed that you had to make the world prepared for Christ. And to do that, you would christen the world. You'd, you'd make everything Christian. And when the world was Christian and prepared for his return, then Jesus would come back and we'd have the thousand-year reign. So I guess by definition, they're pre-mill, but that practice is essentially post-mill. Yeah, where we so usher they in. Was they took over the city of Munster yeah. and pretty much expelled anybody who didn't agree with them. And if you stayed and refused to leave, they killed you. And they made this big commune where you had to follow their rules. And I mean, you know, talking about just setting people on fire, putting them in, you know, cages and beheading people it was just terrible um but that was that was anabaptists who did that uh and that was that's one of the reasons that it's called the radical reformation because they just went so much farther uh in some of these extremist beliefs that they held and so you have you have the anabaptists but in in that same stream of radical reformers, you have guys like Menno Simmons, who really came out from under um, Zwingli. Yeah. So Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland, he's or Geneva, he's trying to reform, but he keeps having these guys pop up who say, "Well, if we're going to hold Scripture as the ultimate authority and not hold tradition as valuable." then we shouldn't be baptizing babies because there's no scriptural premise for that. And he quickly told those guys, like, if you're going to hold to that, you're just going to get, we're going to drown you. Cause that's what they used to do to people who were credo Baptists. They would drown them. We'll just be consistent. Keep you, if you're going to immerse, we're going to keep you under. <laughs> Is that kind of yeah, what it was? Right. Yeah, the, I heard with the, the, uh, the Munster, they still have, I think when they finally took over the city back, I guess the, I would assume the Catholics, I don't know who, who took them over eventually, but they still have those cages hanging from that church or whatever where they, uh, mm-hmm. where they put the, the, some of the uh, Anabaptists and they still yeah. have it hanging there. I don't know, I heard that yesterday. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, up until fairly recently, the, the bones of the men were still in the cages. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, they, that's crazy. they just never took them down. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it was uh, that was a big catalyst in getting other movements like the Mennonites really started was because they wanted to make very clear that they were not those guys. And so back to your point, you have the same kind of thing happening. The, the Munster Rebellion was in the early 1500s, 1530s. And <clears throat> by the time you get to the, the Act of Toleration, in England, which I think was 1644, or no, later, because 1644 came out earlier. But the the English king publishes this act of toleration where you're going to be allowed to practice other other denominations, we would call them other practices of Christianity, without being persecuted. Was that the one that Nehemiah Cox helped with? And I think the king was actually Catholic, wasn't he? I think. Let me look here. I think the king was Catholic, and obviously the Anglicans were the ones doing the yeah. the. They were more uh, so aggressive, and so the act of tolerance was so Catholics could come too. But Nehemiah Cox was saying that, uh, that yeah, this is good for us too because we want <laughs> we want freedom from that too. All right. I mean, everybody celebrated it. Okay. Um, and they had had periods like that before. I mean, probably a hundred years before they had, that's what it actually, if you look into Baptist confessionalism, Mm -hmm. the first confession 
that was really written from a baptistic perspective is just called a true confession that's that's all it was called and it was written in 1596 oh, wow. by a bunch of guys who had run they had left england running to mainland europe because they'd been thrown out after having freedom of practice mm. and so they they run to mainland europe write that confession and i mean it's it's only it only exists now in um like copies we don't have the original anymore but um they they write that and then it's you know 1644 they write the first london baptist confession 1677 they write the second which was largely because of the westminster confession being written although it wasn't a copy um they, they had a different text for their basis when they wrote the 1677. And then when the Act of Toleration came out in 1688, they published the 1689 the next year saying this is what Baptists believe. And the reason they had to publish that was so that they could say we are a legitimate practice um, of Orthodox Christian faith just like the Presbyterians, and we only differ from the Anglicans insofar as these secondary and tertiary beliefs go we're, we're definitely christian because it was still illegal to be non-trinitarian yeah. um you still couldn't be an atheist you still couldn't be a jew so you you had to be christian um but you had some freedom of expression and that's why when you read the 1689 it's it's um chapter on baptism mm-hmm. is rather brief is it because they, yeah, they didn't want to go into really what they believed about baptism because it was going to be divisive. Mm-hmm. And so they just put the basics down. Here is where we certainly have to say we believe this. And hopefully this doesn't make anybody too mad. So, uh, here's, I got have, a question is, is, um, as far as baptism goes, they're at the first, the Baptists, not Anabaptists, but the Baptists in England um, were more worried about the timing rather than the mode. They were still doing sprinkling for a while, just at believer's baptism, correct? Or is that... Well, let me look, because I've got the 1689 here. I, I don't know by that time. I think by that time there was immersion, but... Okay. Yeah, there, there may have been a time where they accepted um, sprinkling, but I would I would doubt it. Okay. Because um, that was, I mean, that was a, a gigantic problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's why they drowned them is because they they. Oh yeah, uh, that makes sense. With the Anabaptists, in, imposed yeah. that it had to be. Yeah, it had to be by immersion. Um, that's not to say that there are. So the Eastern Orthodox Church, like what they have in Russia, mm-hmm. they baptize babies, but they baptize them by immersion. Oh, okay. So. Uh, there are some traditions who practice immersion baptism and yet are also uh, paedo-baptist. Yeah. So I think that when we start coming out with Baptist traditions uh, with the Anabaptists early on and then the English Baptists coming out of the Puritans, I think it would have been pretty clear from the beginning that they were um, cre- uh, immer- immersion Baptists. Because, so, for example, John Smith, who's considered to be if you have a first Baptist person, John Smith is considered the guy. Was he more general, as far yeah. as Armenian? Yeah. Not not Armenian because that hadn't a thing that wasn't a thing yet, but more of that line of thinking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he uh, he he definitely. Well, to say that he was anything would have been pretty hard because he flip flopped a hundred times. Okay. On like whole denominations, um, he he would be. Anglican for a while, and then he'd be Baptist for a while, and then he'd be Presbyterian for a while, and, and then he would, I think he finished his life as a Mennonite. Nice. So, like, it just you could not, you couldn't keep up with what the heck he believed. Yeah, which is fair. I mean, he tried to figure out what was true, but he was trying with absolutely no historical basis. So, a lot of this is so, men getting the Bible for the. I mean, you know, as far as in their translation, and I think a lot of this they're right. trying to figure a lot of stuff out. Yeah, yeah, and you can get into a whole thing as to why that was happening, um, why they were reading the Bible for the first time. But um, when John Smith first decided to endorse um, Baptist views over his Anglican views, he didn't understand how that he was supposed to get baptized. 
because they had such a high ecclesiology. They believed that the person who baptized you was just as important as being baptized. Mm. And so if you were going to be baptized, someone who was a truly baptized believer had to baptize you. Well, if you're living in an age where there are no Baptists and you believe that baptism is only by immersion for believers, then no one has ever been baptized. And so what do you do if you want to be baptized, but there's no one to baptize you? Cannonball. So, <laughs> what is it? Cannonball. Didn't he baptize Can, right? himself or something? I, don't, I wonder what that looked like. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what he did was he, he, that he had this church and he got in the water and pretty much just submerged himself, came back up and then baptized everybody else. Hmm. Uh, and later in his life, he, he went back on that and said, well, that wasn't legitimate because you can't baptize yourself. Yeah, why didn't so, Jesus think uh, of that? <laughs> right. He got John so to do like, it. He, um, that's one of the reasons he flip-flopped all over. And, and at the end of his life, he was still searching for somebody to baptize him. And he ended up, even though he was an English Baptist, what we would call him maybe an English Baptist, he ended up going to Europe and asking the Mennonites to baptize him hmm. because he considered them the first Baptist. And that's where all the confusion comes in is you had this guy coming out of the English Reformation who recognized that the radical reformers, these Anabaptist guys, were the first real Baptists. But uh, most Baptist theologians and historians today say, no, he, he was wrong to think that because it's an entirely different tradition. Hmm. Yeah, so so from there we we see the general kind of came about first, the general baptists and then and then the particulars came out of the puritans. Um mm-hmm. so and and I think with the general they kind of uh a lot of times started to get some her- heretical ideas come in, but even with the general baptists like the orthodox uh confession, I think 1691, they they're reaching back to the early church. So the 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 Baptists in England, as far as general in particular, they were still very traditional in their in their ideas. But obviously, with the, the you know the Baptist idea, they were a little different. And and it's it's interesting, like reading even like the Lord's Supper in the 1689. Uh, it's not necessarily Calvinistic, like as far as his idea of spiritual presence, but it's similar. And even going back to the early church, you know, you see like spiritual presence in the Lord's supper you know that that language and obviously you know they wanted to show their difference with transubstantiation with the catholics and the consubstantiation with the lutherans but but you kind of see that that connection back to the early church even and uh but i didn't know exactly what they said on baptism so that is interesting uh i think some of the like keach when was keach after no he helped with the uh, 1689 yeah, he, didn't he? He, he was one of the signers of the 1689 okay. so he actually does like in some of his writings explain and 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 fight for baptism a little more but as you were saying it's not as in detail in uh, the 1689 uh confession as far as um in depth because they wanted to see themselves connected still with the you know the uh westminster and, and there and it's a lot of the same language as well but yeah. um so from there yeah. so at the same time and this is what's so confusing with me we're in america at early 1600s right whenever like uh what was the first baptist church the i know some say yeah, he was, wasn't even a baptist 1600s okay so that that's going about about the same time but even who was it roger williams is that his name yeah yeah and some don't necessarily know if he was truly about what was it did he leave the baptist faith uh, idea after he started that church I, I know there's some controversy there but yeah i mean i'm not overly familiar with what happened with him but i know that he didn't start the baptist church uh because he was already a baptist he came to america and then and then became, became a baptist okay and a lot of that was him leaving, like with some Native American issues with the Puritans at that in that time in Massachusetts. So he had to actually leave, but and start that in Rhode yeah. Island. But even him, he had very Calvinistic roots. And then uh, the next uh, whoever took that one over, I think they were still Calvinistic, and and just kind of show the 
the the Calvinistic ideas within American Baptist life, like the foundations of it, if you want to talk a little bit about that. The foundation of what Calvinistic Just thought in the, Baptists? Yeah, the the whole idea of the Baptists in America were were predominantly Calvinist. Catholic in their yeah. in their confessions and okay, in their looking. yeah. Okay. Um, so the the Baptists in America had a really hard road to hoe because the the early colonies were very very um they didn't like people they were not ecumenical they were not pluralistic that you could not believe differently so uh that's why the colony of rhode island was founded um roger williams was pretty much banished to rhode island uh because he was a baptist and he started that colony um as a baptist colony most of the early colonies had a stated religion. So like the Quakers in Pennsylvania um, and most of Massachusetts was largely Anglican. So if you believe differently, again, they would either whip you nearly to death or drown you. So um, when Roger Williams went to Rhode Island, he, he starts this Baptist colony with a Baptist church Pretty soon they started a Baptist seminary, which has now become Brown universities. You know, all those Ivy League schools were started as seminaries. Um, So, you know, you had Princeton and Harvard. Those, uh, those were both uh, Christian universities. And then Brown was a Baptist university. That's cool. I did Um, not know that. Now they're all liberal, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Now they're all liberal. Um, And yeah. So anyway, uh, soon after, the foundation of this Baptist uh, group, they started really distinguishing themselves as, as upstanding people of character and people that were worthy of recognition. And so uh, you had this group that were coming into Pennsylvania <clears throat> where it was still not really liked that people would be non-Quaker um, in that area. And so around the early 1700s, they founded this um, association of churches, which was a different thing back then from what we have now. But they founded an association of churches that stretched from Pennsylvania over to New Jersey, and they called it the Philadelphia Baptist Association. And one of the things that was on their minds was we need a confession of faith that is explicitly... Uh, Baptist, but which it ha- bears our uh, stamp of approval, because people in that era were increasingly distancing themselves from their British identity. Okay, uh, you get you're, you're leading up to the Revolutionary War. Uh, they didn't like the idea of still really being tied to English anything. So, you know, you're, you're talking about Benjamin Keach, right? Mm-hmm. So 1689, Benjamin Keach is one of the signers of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Mm. Well, he has a son named Elias Keach, and Elias Keach is in America, in the area, and he says, well, there was a confession written, my father was a part of it, uh, we should reaffirm that and alter it in some ways to be what we believe now. Okay, and cool. so they took that. the 1689 and they added two um, articles to it. Uh, I know one of them was the laying on of hands. Um, the other, let me look here just a second. And so this is about what time? Is this before 1700s? <clears throat> this is 1742. Okay, so it's a little um, bit after. So what was Keach doing in America, just kind of helping with the Baptists over there? Yeah, yeah, and he was, I mean, he was a pastor, and, and that was kind of the thing to do at the time, okay. was to go to America. Um, I, can't, I can't think for the life of me what the other article was that they added. It was the last one. It might have been on uh, Last Things, but in any case, they um, they added two articles in that weren't in the 1689. Everything else they left the same, okay. and it came out as what they called the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. So the Philadelphia Confession, 1742, is in almost every recognizable way, the 1689. Okay. So um, 
that confession stood as the official confession of Baptists for a long time, um, about a hundred years, uh, which is not a bad tenure for a Baptist confession. Nowadays, we can we change our confessions just about every forty years. So um, that stood from seventeen forty two through to the mid eighteen hundreds. Um, in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention begins, mm-hmm. and immediately they say, we need a confession, and so most churches affirmed the Philadelphia Confession. The vast majority of churches affirmed the Philadelphia Confession. Um, they, they got together to found Southern Seminary, and they didn't want to be overly exclusive of people who didn't affirm every single jot and tittle in the confession. So they wrote what they called the abstract of principles. And that's the confessional document of the Southern Baptist convention. It's still the confessional document. And that was written about what time? 1845. Okay. So they did at that time. So that book you told me to get, it actually just came in yesterday. That was, that was what that is pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And that is, believe it or not, that is the longest standing confession of faith of any Baptist ever. So like the 1689, like I said, it's still affirmed by churches today, but it doesn't have this unbroken tenure of affirmation since 1689. It was written in 1689. Then they revised it in 1742. So that's what 60 years. Then the Philadelphia confession goes from 1642 and it's revised almost entirely thrown away in 1853. Um, in 1853, Baptists got together in New Hampshire and decided to write a confession of faith that was su- supposed to have been inclusive of people who were not Calvinists. That okay. was the goal. And this was what time was again? 18... 1852. 52, okay. So this is where you start to see more inclusion because even, even, cause even I read an article, 1845 Southern Baptist Convention... Uh, it would have been hard to find a leader who was not Calvinist. Yeah, yeah. And that, there's a whole lot more behind this. I mean, there's two movements going on in, in uh, North Carolina um, that they were, there was a whole movement of people who, there's like the Sandy Creek yeah, community. Yeah, i heard that. Sandy Creek, yeah. Yeah, you've heard of that. i heard that, yeah. So <clears throat> they were eschewing, they were kind of trying to get away from education in Baptist polity. They didn't want Baptists to have to go to seminary. Um, and that was really the explosion of Baptist uh, popularity in the South was when they started saying, you don't need any formal education to be a Baptist mm. preacher. Just go out and preach. Yeah. And so those guys became very popular. And they were also just so happened to be non-Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And so um, as that movement exploded onto the scene, people started saying, well, we need a Baptist confession that's not Calvinist. And so they got together in New Hampshire and wrote the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, which for most, I would say for most purposes, is almost worthless. What what time was that again? 18, is that the 1853 one? Yeah. New Hampshire, okay, all right. Yeah, and so it's, it's so broad that it's not... I, I would hardly even call it a confession of faith. It's it's so vague. Inclusive. Um, yeah, super inclusive. At this time, Darby really hadn't come on the rise, so dispensationalism wouldn't have a effect on this one. I wouldn't no, say right. Okay. No. Yeah, that was that's that more not really here yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the New Hampshire comes out, <clears throat> and it's it's almost entirely uh, ignored for the most part for several years what made it popular was you know that um church covenant that you see hanging on the walls at all these old churches i'd actually it's, I'd, it's, i'm probably knowing what it, you're it, saying yeah if you go to um any old-fashioned country church they'll have this gigantic church covenant hanging on the wall i literally saw that and last sunday at, at first baptist sweetwater north north sweetwater or whatever north baptist okay. Sweetwater, whatever it's called yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I didn't read so, it but i'm assuming that's what you're talking about yeah yeah, it's usually in a big wooden frame. It says Church and Covenant. It just says, uh, having been led as we believe by the Holy Spirit. And it, every paragraph ends with, or starts with, we engage, we engage, we engage, we okay. engage. 
so that covenant was written and it, somebody thought it was very good and so they started publicizing it and along with it they carried the new hampshire confession and so they published it together with the new hampshire confession and people wanted the church covenant so they buy that and get the new hampshire confession with it hmm. and for whatever reason, the first group of people to get really into it were in Texas. And there was this big falling out because this was right around the time of the Civil War. And all the Texans were getting upset because this confession of faith that was being adopted by Baptists was written in the North because mm. it was the New, New Hampshire. Hampshire Confession. Oh, yeah. So they start getting all upset that their beliefs are being dictated to them by Northerners. And so the Southern Baptists who were largely in agreement with the New Hampshire confession by the, the end of the civil war didn't want their confession to have been written in the North. Yeah. And so they largely just affirmed it without saying so. And they went without a confession Okay. That leads you to 1925. Um, there's issue over evolution, mm. and there's an issue over um, the inerrancy of the Bible. And so a guy named E.Y. Mullins, who was mm. um, a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, former or current president of the Southern Seminary, he decides that it's time for Southern Baptists to write their own confession of faith. Um, and so 1925, they come together and they write the Baptist faith and message 1925. They used as their basis, the New Hampshire confession because they considered it the most inclusive. Okay. And they, they, what they were trying to do was say, you can't believe in evolution. You have to affirm the, the Bible. Mm hmm. And they didn't want that moment to be a moment where Calvinist and non-Calvinist split each other. And the denomination just broke into pieces and they lost this war for uh, creationism and the inerrancy of the Bible. And so instead of using the 1689 or the 1742 Philadelphia Confession, which would have caused a problem with non-Calvinists, they went with the New Hampshire which Calvinists were largely willing to accept because it doesn't say Calvinism's false. It okay. just doesn't say anything. Okay. Huh. So that one's so, definitely the inclusive one. That's yeah. kind of, and the, and even today, the faith and whatever, what'd you call it? Faith and what? The Baptist faith and message. There's yeah. one, they redid it in 2000, right? Or they probably redid so, it a few times. Yeah. The, you can the bring 1925, they redid it in 1963. Okay. Uh, that was, that was specifically over the issue of the inerrancy of the Bible. Um, we revised the 1963 and 1998 okay. uh, when we were dealing with the problems about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Mm. Um, and then in 2000, it got to the point where we said, we, we can't just have a revision. We need to add in a substantial amount of stuff because this is the issues are pressing themselves against us. Issues like family issues and gender issues uh, war and all that, all this stuff has become so different from what we engaged in the 1920s and 1960s. We need to rewrite it. And so you have the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Can you give us a brief which, summary on exactly that one? What you know it's about? It's very brief. Um, so, yeah, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it was large also... Um, you got to understand Southern Baptist history because you have the conservative resurgence um, or what people on the other side call the fundamentalist takeover. Mm. Um, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, Southern Baptists were pretty liberal. And mm. a large portion of the pastors, missionaries, and professors in the Southern Baptist Convention were female. And so the Southern Baptist really were leading the same way that the Presbyterians were. They had watched what had just happened with the Presbyterian church. Uh, in that era, the Presbyterians fought their own uh, conservative battle, but the conservatives lost. And you have two denominations now 
one called the Presbyterian Church in the USA, the other called the Presbyterian Church in America. And the PCUSA are very liberal. You'll know a PCUSA church when you see it. It'll be the one with the pride flags out front and the gay pastor. You see that okay. in every denomination, pretty much. You know how Presbyterians have that? Even in Sweetwater, the, the Lutherans have that. It's like a split with the liberals and the conservatives. Uh -huh. That's, that's yeah, interesting. The Methodists yeah. just did it. They, yeah, that's right. They, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, the, the Southern Baptists were heading that way. There was going to be a split. And so Adrian Rogers comes up with this idea where he says, if we can get a conservative president elected every year for 10 years, we can save the denomination. Hmm. And uh, he was in with a guy named W.A. Chriswell, who was a longtime Southern Baptist. He pastored uh, in Dallas. And they, they came up with that plan. And what they did was they went around the country literally campaigning, just like you would see a presidential campaign for the American presidency. And they got all these churches to vote for conservative presidents. The president gets to decide who the trustees are at all the seminaries. So when the president installs new trustees, those trustees get to decide who gets hired as president of the seminary and as faculty members. So the trustees start saying you cannot be on faculty at a Southern Baptist seminary unless you are conservative. And what that did was, over time, all the liberal professors began to retire or resign because they were tired of the way that the denomination was going, and they would fill their spots with conservatives. What then happens is all these conservative faculty members educate the students in a conservative way, mm -hmm. and your entire denomination begins to be pastored by seminary grads who are educated by conservatives. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of the late 80s, mid-90s, you had this movement where the conservatives really did take over. From from the top to the bottom, conservatives took over. And so in 1993, you have Al Mohler installed as the president of Southern Seminary. And that was a, that was a big moment. Uh, in Mohler's first three years at Southern Seminary, it was 90% faculty turnover. Hmm. So 90% of the people who worked at Southern when Mohler got there were gone three years later. So this was a complete takeover. And so by 2000, most of that had worked its way through, and the denomination was largely conservative. And so you have this revision of the Baptist faith and message that wanted to be firm on our position on the scriptures, our position on evolution, our, our position on marriage. Um, and, and they wrote it in a way that's very brief, but um, it's, it's good. It's a good confession. Um, the The chapter on baptism is actually, in my opinion, better than what you find in the 1689. Okay. Um, but you also had on the committee that drew up the uh, Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you have two major figures that were very important. You had uh, Adrian Rogers, mm -hmm. who was a hardline non-Calvinist. Uh, you could not have found a person who was less Calvinist than Adrian Rogers. Also on that committee, you have Al Mohler, who is a hardline Calvinist. Hmm. And so those two guys were pretty clearly the leaders of this committee that put together the Baptist faith and message. And so when you have... Uh, sections in the Baptist Faith and Message on something like salvation, you can see certain aspects that were clearly influenced by Moeller. So like chapter 5 deals with God's purpose of grace, and it says, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Then immediately following that, you have a line that was certainly influenced by Adrian Rogers, because right after it says we believe in election, it says that election is consistent with the free agency of man. <laughs> and so you have in one breath, they'll say we believe in election and we believe in man's free agency. Huh. And so... That you, you have to imagine them sitting in this room and Moeller and Rogers looking at what they've written and they look up at each other and they say, you good with that? 
He says, yeah, I think I'm good with that. <laughs> that's, that's good. Because they, they just, they had to find a way of working this so that all Baptist, Calvinist, and not could affirm it. Adrian Rogers and Moeller, and this is what time? This is right before 2000 or in 2000? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is right at the year 2000. So basically, the the, the faith and method message of 2000 is very open to Calvinistic ideas as well as Armenian. Is that what Adrian Rogers would yeah. consider himself, Armenian? So he's what you're talking about. We, we would call him probably closer to Amaraldianism. Is that traditionalism where, when people say traditionalism? You're not truly Arminianist. You don't believe you can lose your salvation, but... You're not Calvinist by any stretch. Okay. So say that word again, yeah. would you say? <laughs> Amaraldianism. Where does that uh, be? Is that what people, when they say they're traditionalist, is that what they're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. That's, Where did that's that come from? That's what the vast majority of, of Southern Baptists are. Is that an, a person's name? Yeah. Where, where yeah. Who was he exactly? Let me look here. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you throw it off on you like that. <laughs> no, you're good. I appreciate um, it. I know we're going way too long, so you can wrap it up whenever you're ready. But th- this has helped no, me okay. tremendously as far as seeing where we're at today, because I really want to show my class that as well, and the and yeah. the podcast. But but to show where we're at today, because and and because one of the questions I got asked was why are we uh, what is reformed theology and why we're not reformed, and that's the the thing is we're not necessarily uh, anti-reformed. We're we're not pro-Armenian either. We're somewhere in between based on yeah. this confession, I guess. This 2000 faith and message is kind of our influence at this point. Right. Yeah, so Amaradianism was uh, an idea put forward by a guy named Moses Amarat. Um And it's you can also just call it moderate Calvinism. Okay. Um, if you've ever heard of Millard Erickson, he's, he was one of um, my professors at one point. He wrote a book called... Uh, Christian theology. It's a systematic theology. Um, but he's a moderate Calvinist. He's one of the foremost moderate Calvinists of the day. Um, but anyway, uh, they're, we would pretty much call them four-point Calvinists because they, they deny um, limited atonement. Yeah. Um, but they, they believe in election. They believe that God has predetermined or predestined whom he's going to save but the way that they work it is they'll say this god predestined a group of people who are going to be saved by christ and so it's almost like god sets a box over on the side of his table and he says this box represents those who are saved by christ and i have predestined that only the people in that box will be saved and so he does predestine but they say the box is up to you to get into. So you have to bring yourself to the point where you get in the box. And once you get in the box, then you are predestined. Um, so they do believe that there's a group of people who are predestined, but they believe that you are somewhat responsible for getting into it. So the confession itself isn't necessarily semi-Pelagian, but you're saying a lot of the uh, the uh, Baptists today are. But the confession, that's not semi-Pelagian, right? The uh, Baptist faith and message? Yeah, it doesn't. It, it doesn't no. like hint no. at that. Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, so I, you would say I it's closer to it if it was. Yeah, and and that's oh, kind of the beauty of it is that um, my church affirms the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and the 1689. Okay. And so we're, um, we're, what we do is we say, if you want to be a member of our church, you have to affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Okay. That's the rule. Okay. Um, because you, that it's so brief. If you disagree with anything in that, you've got a problem. Would you say that um, it's closer to four point Calvinism or closer to Arminianism? Uh, I'd have to study it a little better. I mean, I would assume that if Moeller could affirm it, it would have to be at least four point. Okay. Uh, but I'd have to look into it because it's, like I said, it's intentionally vague. Yeah, moderate it's, Calvinist, they've, yeah. Yeah, vague, yeah. inclusive. so as to not be overly assertive on issues like that. And I like that. The, myself yeah. even though yeah, I, I lean more one way i like that it's a little more you know because i don't i don't like us being so divisive as far as i like that southern baptist convention is as broad as it is you know yeah 
Yeah, I mean, you should be able to have Calvinist and Arminianist and Honoraldian sitting in the same church. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be difficult at times, but they should yeah. be able to go to church together. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Um, but there is, like, in the in the section on salvation in the Baptist faith and message, so it says, uh, talking specifically about regeneration, uh, regeneration or the new birth. So this is when you're born again, all right, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Jesus Christ. It is a change of heart worked by the Holy Spirit. And it says, uh, when, that, <clears throat> when that occurs, <clears throat> excuse me, when regeneration occurs, the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Now, that's that's actually very Calvinist. Because what has just been said is regeneration, that is salvation, being born again, that occurs prior to your expressing faith. Mm, that's and that's pretty much what the Calvinists are saying. Regeneration yeah, precedes faith. That's textbook Calvinism. Regeneration precedes faith. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what um what's his name um, uh, Flowers is arguing against. Yeah, Doctor Flowers. He would say because yeah. I, I just watched a debate a few weeks ago on uh, it was him and uh, Joel. Can't think of his name, but uh, he Beaking? was. What is it? Is it Joel Beaking? Yes, that guy. Yeah, they were yeah. they were debating that and and. As far as that kind of shows God's grace that He makes the first move, He draws you to Himself. Right. Yeah. So in our in our confession, it says that regeneration happens, and then we respond with mm. faith, and that faith is an experience of grace. So that that I mean that's one of the main reasons that I say I can affirm the Baptist Faith Message two thousand yeah. is because even though. The, the section on God's purpose of grace or election, which, by the way, they named it that on purpose. Uh, it's called the section on God's purpose of grace. Every other confession just calls it the section on election. But in that section, you can clearly see Adrian Rogers' influence because they're, they're including the free agency of man. And that's fine. You know, we do believe that man has free will. The Baptist faith, the 1689... London Baptist Confession has an entire chapter entitled Free Will. So Calvinists believe in free will. And yet, we believe that in order to be saved, you must be drawn by God, and God saves you, and you respond with faith because faith is a gift. Mm -hmm. So I think that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is very accommodating to Calvinist. Okay. Uh, but as the, the thing where it really gets, um, they, they were wise in choosing their wording is you won't find anything about atonement in the Baptist faith and message 2000. Yeah. Cause that is the controversy uh, right there with the limited versus, uh, yeah. Uh, unlimited. unlimited. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that's where they, they left that out. So it leaves that uh, open for the believer. It's not That's not a pretty much is what the, the confession does. It leaves it open? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can either believe or disbelieve in limited or, dis, uh, or unlimited atonement um, and affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Okay. That's awesome. And uh, I know we're at 58 minutes, so I'm going to let you go. Anything else you want to – I I truly appreciate your time and, and your knowledge and, and helping me with this, especially just seeing where we're at today. That's really where I was the most confused, the more the more modern uh, confessions and how we got to where we are today. And I really think you walked us through that beautifully. Um, would you say dispensationalism has an effect on, on a lot of the anti or movement away from Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Church? And as far as where we're at today, you're starting to see an uprising in Calvinism and especially in the seminary. So this could be a difference and a different uh, thing in, you know, the next five to 10 years. Would you say, would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the dispensationalist idea altogether completely rejects what has, uh, we'll call it covenantalism, which is a foundational part of Baptist. most every confession mm-hmm. that Calvinist ever wrote. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, that it kind of precluded that. You you couldn't be Bisbee and affirm the 1689 because it's too Calvinist. What about the New Hampshire? The New Hampshire would leave that open? The New Hampshire, maybe. What about the 1925 was called what? The 1925 was just called the Baptist Faith Message. Okay, so that one would leave it open for Disbees. At that point, dispensationalism started to make a move with the Schofield reference Bible and everything, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you started having guys like W.A. Chriswell down in Texas. Uh, Adrian Rogers was Disbee. Um, So you started having these, that's much later, obviously, Rogers. But um, you started having major figures in the SPC that were Disbee. And I I really don't think, they had to pick their battles because when they made Moeller the president of Southern Seminary, they were looking for a guy that was really conservative. Mm -hmm. Well, boy, they found him. Yeah. But they didn't know that he was going to influence the denomination towards Calvinism and confessionalism uh, because he is really emphatic that we should be a confessional people. And um, it's, it's been a very different thing than they probably anticipated. So yeah, uh, dispensationalism did play a big part in leading Baptists away from confessionalism in general uh, leading us away from Calvinism, covenantalism, it changed the whole world. So, but since say the nineties, uh, there's been a movement of, uh, what we call neo reformed or neo Calvinist. Um, it, it really started with, uh, Mark Driscoll, believe it or not. But, um, you got guys like John Piper and, um, John MacArthur and RC Sproul and Steve Lawson, mm-hmm. Alistair Begg, all those guys have been leading this movement for about 30 years uh, of the neo-reform, neo-Calvinist movement. And that's why, by and large, you'll scarcely find anybody coming out of any any seminary that is dispy now. I know 80% of my favorite teachers are all Calvinists. So um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, besides a few Lutherans and then a few Dispies, uh, it's 80% of who I listen to is Calvinists. So that I, that's one reason, you know, they're... And then, obviously, with seminary. So there definitely is coming kind of more of a change in the future, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I'm seeing it as a pastor. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when you're looking at your congregation and, say, all of your people over the age of 70 are dispensationalist, and most of the people between 40 and 60 don't really know but everyone under 40 is not Calvinist or sorry, not dispensationalist. Yeah. I mean, generally just about every person under 40 in my church is Calvinist and they are not Disby. And, uh, that is a massive shift. There's a book that just came out called the rise and fall of dispensationalism. And it's interesting. Not that there's no one smart that's Disby anymore, or, but the, just the influence it's had, even with, uh, oh, yeah. with our papers and, and magazines that come out there, it's more reform people that they're letting in and not necessarily the Disby stuff. And it's, yeah. that's kind of the fall. Not that nobody's dispensational now, but that's kind of the idea that it's, it had a rise and Zionism and everything. And then you kind of see it falling now. Yeah. Actually, have you read that book? I've I've listened to two of the uh, interviews by the guy, and and they yeah. kind of walked through it. But I've not actually, and he actually debated a a guy who wrote the history of dispensational and dispensational thought, as well as the system itself, and and pretty much saying that we're still here, but we're just not being recognized as much now. And to, and and the guy, other guy was like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The right, that's the fall. <laughs> He's like, that's the fall that I'm talking about. You're not being as not that there's none of you out there. But you're starting to see it collapse a little more, and the and reformed ideas kind of come up. But but I, I'm not read it. Have you read it? Yeah, I'm, I, in November uh, I'll be publishing a book review on it in okay, Ecclesia cool. Militons. Sweet. Um, but he he does a really good job of tracing the history there and the influences. That's all he is. And, He's a historian. He doesn't even know. He doesn't have a like a theological uh, preference. He's like I don't. Yeah. I'm not a theologian. I'm a historian. So th- that's yeah. one reason I like him. Yeah, he, he, he really is um, a historian who's kind of tripped over a coffee table and found himself in the middle of a theological debate. Because <laughs> uh, he, he didn't mean to do that, but uh, that's that's where he's at. But uh, yeah, and you'll see that in a lot of different places. Like John MacArthur, when John MacArthur dies, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going to have a real 
division yeah. in the reform community because MacArthur and Sproul were able to hold themselves together. Yeah. And MacArthur being Disby and Sproul being covenantal. And they just were able to hold themselves together. We're, we have a new generation that I don't think is going to be able to do that. <clears throat> and uh, the guys coming out of Master's Seminary believe like MacArthur does. Do they? So they're, is that they're California? Calvinist, but they're Disby. Okay. And uh, I don't know how that's going to play its way out. Yeah. But that, that guy that was at eschatology. A, a denomination come out of that. If you see a Grace Community Church, it's mostly pastored by guys who came out of Master's Seminary and believe like MacArthur. Mm-hmm. So, and even uh, to show you, you can be Disby and Calvinist. David Jeremiah. I don't know where he's. At. I don't think he's Calvinist, mm-hmm. but he's got a school that's that's still kind of connected to his church. That's uh, still obviously teaching dispensationalism. And yeah, I think he is a Calvinist. Is he okay? I, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, and then you still got Dallas Theological and whatnot. But oh well, that I, we're at, we're over an hour. I'll let you go, brother. I, I truly appreciate it. It's opened my eyes to be able to better understand and explain it, and uh, just seeing where we're at today. <clears throat> and and I'm proud. <clears throat> I'm I'm proud to be Baptist. We got a cool history, but you know, not to the yeah. point to where I want to show that. Especially the early Baptists wanted to show their continuity with with the early church and the traditions. You know. The Trinitarian language, even the 1689 showed, you know, divine simplicity language, uh, yeah. you know, the filioque and, and, and uh, uh, you know, language like that. Um, and I'd, so I think that's interesting and good for discussion. But I'll let you go. Uh, uh, anything else you want to say before you go? You good? I'm just glad to talk with you, man. And I, I love having these conversations. I appreciate everything you're doing on your end. You're, you're doing a great work out there in Sweetwater and uh, really proud of you, the way that you're growing. And uh you're, you're doing all this on your own, man. So I'm, I'm just really impressed with you, brother. I appreciate that. And, uh, and I, I keep you in my prayers. I love all the work you're doing and, and you're my go-to guy. So when I have a question, I'm like, all right, let me ask Michael. So I appreciate that. <laughs> and God's using you and, and yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, uh, anyway. All right. So I, I think we're good. I appreciate your time and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening guys. Uh, see you next time.